You are listening to ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to The Revealing Retina, presented by the American Retina Foundation, the charitable arm of the American Society of Retina Specialists. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Levitt, Chairman of the American Retina Foundation. Today's discussion is going to deal with the painless and sudden loss of vision due to retinal detachment. The ability to diagnose, recognize the cause, and successfully treat vision loss due to detachments has been one of the great successes of the ophthalmic specialty and the driving force in the creation of the subspecialty of retina. We'll talk with Dr. Saad Sheikh, a retinal surgeon and associate professor of ophthalmology at the University of Central Florida School of Medicine. Welcome to The Revealing Retina, Dr. Sheikh. Hello. Hi, Roy. How are you doing? Just great. Maybe we can start out by having you explain the various types of retinal detachments. Certainly. There are three main categories of retinal attachments. There are first those that are caused by retinal tears or uh, regmatogenous retinal detachments. And regmatogenous derives its name from regma, meaning retina or break, and this is the most common type. There are also tractional retinal detachments. These are caused by scar tissue from an underlying hereditary or vascular disease process such as diabetes or retinopathy or prematurity. And finally, there are exudative retinal detachments, and these are caused by tumors, retinal vascular occlusions, or macular degeneration. The regmatogenous retinal attachments arising from retinal tears have the greatest risk for sudden vision loss, and that's the type that is the most common and most concerning. Let's talk about the ones that develop from retinal tears. How does a tear occur? Well, to understand retinal tears and retinal detachments, it's useful to understand where the retina lies in the eye. We can think of the eye as a camera, a large spherical camera. Uh, the focusing structures, the cornea and the lens are in the front of the eye, while the film, or the retina, lines the back of the spherical eye. The retina acts as our biological film that captures light from the outside world and transmits it to our brain where we actually perceive these images. To understand why the retina has a tendency to detach, it's important to look back at how the eye develops as an embryo or embryologically. In the third week of gestation, the optic cups, which eventually become our eyes, begin to form as invaginations of the primitive neural tube. The cup has two walls. The outer wall, which was originally the surface epithelium of the neural tube, and a neurosensory inner wall. The outer wall differentiates into the outer layer of the retina called the retinal pigment epithelium. And the inner wall becomes the neurosensory retina with photoreceptors, nerve fibers, and other neural elements. These two walls are initially separated by a narrow intraretinal space. And although this space disappears by the seventh week of gestation, these two layers never really fuse together. This space is closed by hydrostatic forces, but it always is potentially there. So this potential space has a tendency to reestablish itself under certain conditions, and that is when we have a retinal attachment. The space inside the cup or eye is filled uh, with mesenchymal elements and primitive blood vessels, and this will regress and differentiate into the vitreous humor, the clear jelly that fills the inside of our eye. And this jelly is made up of long collagen strands linked by sugar molecules. So now that we have a better idea of the anatomy and embryology, the key steps in the development of a retinal detachment are as follows. First, as we age, our vitreous humor begins to break up. The sugar linkages dissolve and the matrix becomes liquefied and collapses. This manifests as floaters in our vision. We might see these as shadows when you look at a clear computer screen. 
the bright blue sky or at a white ceiling. The vitreous that remains adherent to the retina then begins to exert traction on the retinal surface. As we age further, a critical threshold is reached and the vitreous collapses in a process called a posterior vitreous separation. This means, as it states, that the vitreous humor has completely separated free from its adhesions to the posterior retina. Most of us will have had a posterior vitreous separation by the time we are 70. A posterior vitreous detachment is harmless by itself, and it only usually leaves us with a few more large floaters in the center of our vision. But it is at this time that a small number of patients with abnormal vitreoretinal adhesion will develop a retinal tear as the vitreous is pulling free. When a tear develops, the liquid vitreous can now enter through the opening of the tear into that potential space between the neurosensory retina and the retinal pigment epithelium, and this results in a retinal detachment. So the fluid then gains access to the potential space, and the retina can separate rapidly or slowly. It just depends on the setup of that particular retina, or is there something that predisposes to the retina rapidly detaching? Well, yeah, in certain cases, the retina can detach rather quickly. There are risk factors for certain patients to develop that retinal detachment. As mentioned, increasing age is a primary risk factor as the vitreous humor begins to age, but also being nearsighted or myopic uh, is an additional risk factor. In such individuals, the eye is larger than normal, and this is accompanied by secondary retinal thinning and abnormal vitreous adhesions. A history of previous eye surgery, such as LASIK, cataract surgery, or any other type of intraocular surgery is an additional risk factor. A history of eye or head trauma, genetics, as retinal detachment syndromes can be inherited, you know, certain sports or high-risk activity. And then finally, individuals who have had a detachment or a tear in one eye are at risk for developing a tear in the other eye. So, so these are the additional risk factors for developing a retinal detachment. Right. And people who are nearsighted, where their eyes are larger than normal, don't they have a predisposition to early liquefaction of the vitreous? Roy, that's correct. In, in patients that are nearsighted, their vitreous does have a tendency to break up quicker than otherwise. And as a result, there is more liquid vitreous floating around. In addition, these patients tend to have abnormal vitreoretinal adhesions. And when a tear does form, there is an increased rate of liquid entry into the subretinal space and progression into a retinal detachment. Is there any evidence that some of this fluid may be serous in nature? It certainly can be serous in nature in some individuals. That depends on the underlying disease process and the eye for that, that individual patient. What would you say is the incidence of a retinal detachment in the normal population? Well, in the normal population, the incidence of retinal detachments is about 1 in 15,000. It has a prevalence of about 0.3% in the United States. Would you say the percentage in people who are nearsighted would be like 0.5 or 0.8%? Is it that much of an increase? I'd probably agree with that, Roy. There certainly is an increased incidence in individuals who are nearsighted. Okay. For those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to The Revealing Retina on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Roy Levitt, and I'm speaking with Dr. Saad Sheikh, a retinal surgeon and associate professor of ophthalmology at the University of Central Florida School of Medicine. There has been a lot of technologic development and improvement in the ability to repair detachments. Initially, 
detachments were repaired with a specific surgical procedure called a sclerobuckle, and I'd like for Saw to discuss this. Certainly. The time-honored method, actually, of repairing retinal detachments was by using the surgical device called the sclerobuckle. This buckling methods date back to the 1950s. Uh, in sclerobuckling, a silicone band, much like a belt around one's trousers, is attached to the eye wall or the sclera, and it's tightened to create an indentation in the wall of the eye. This indentation releases the vitreous traction on the retina, and it supports the underlying retinal break, allowing the retina to reattach. It was really the first reliable method we had to repair retinal detachments. At first, the buckle was embedded into the sclera in what was a complicated scleral dissection, and nowadays it's more easily sewn right onto the eye wall itself. The buckle resides beneath the conjunctiva where it is not visible, and scleral buckles are permanent surgical implants made of inert silicone. So they aren't removed, and modern buckles are safe for radiologic imaging. In fact, we still use buckles today, sometimes in combination with other retinal detachment techniques. So the key here is to close the tear. That's correct. That's the key for any, any retinal detachment repair. Identifying and then closing the tear is critical. So initially when things started out, the procedure was to close the tear externally. And now with technology, it can be closed internally. And how is that done? As we spread through the 20th century, and especially in the latter part of the 20th century, we began to develop vitrectomy techniques to repair retinal detachments. A vitrectomy, like it sounds, is a procedure where we enter the inside of the eye, gain access to the vitreous cavity, and remove the vitreous gel. And we can use this in many different retinal conditions, but for retinal detachments, by removing the gel, we're removing the vitreous traction upon the retina and uh, the tugging on the retinal tear that is causing the retina to detach. Once we've relieved that traction, we can intraoperatively reattach the retina and uh, seal the break using either laser or freezing treatments. And this will create a scar around the break that will allow it to close. In earlier in the century, we really did not have an easy or safe way to get inside of the eye, but over the course of the last 20 to 30 years, we've really begun to pioneer these sorts of surgical techniques. Well, it certainly is a good time in the history of the development of repair detachments to be alive. If you have a patient that comes in complaining of floaters, what would a non-ophthalmic physician advise this patient to do? That's a good question, Roy. Floaters are very common, and if you look closely enough, every one of us has floaters. But in a patient complaining of floaters, we need to ask the following questions. First, is the floater new or is, has it changed? We should also ask if the patient's seeing flashes with these floaters. Sometimes flashes can accompany otherwise benign changes in the vitreous, but they should always lead to an evaluation for a retinal tear. Another question to ask is, is there accompanying vision loss? We probably also want to know if there are any visual field changes. Is the patient seeing a shade or a curtain in their vision? Other critical questions to ask are whether the patient's had previous eye surgery or any other sorts of ocular procedures or trauma. And you could ask them if they've been taking part in other high-risk activity. At the same time, we probably also want to know if they've had previous retinal tears or detachments in either that eye or uh, the fellow eye. All of these questions will help us to better define the floaters. And if the answer to any of these questions is yes, 
then this patient probably does need a thorough evaluation by a retinal specialist to fully examine the retina to identify whether any retinal breaks or detachments are present. I notice that you have done some work dealing with patients that have gotten retinal detachments on roller coasters. Right, that's correct. Yeah, I happen to live in Orlando, so we see several patients who come down to Disney or the amusement parks and then subsequently would call into my practice requesting an evaluation for floaters. And in many of these patients who were nearsighted or had other risk factors for developing uh, retinal tears and detachments, we did find that they developed retinal detachments from roller coaster riding. So it is a curious observation that we happen to notice just by being in, in the local vicinity of a lot of roller coaster theme parks. Right, and I'm sure there have been reported detachments in people who bungee jump as well. Right, certainly. Bungee jumping and other high-risk activities like boxing, you know, certainly martial arts, uh, the impact of paintball injuries, all of these can cause sudden traumatic impact to the eye and the acceleration and deceleration of the vitreous uh, inside the eyeball does add to an increased risk of retinal tearing. I know when Sugar Ray had his retinal detachment and it was repaired and he was given the go-ahead to box again, you know, a lot of us retina specialists at the time were very skeptical. But I think that if the surgery is done well and the tear is closed and the eye heals, it's like new for that episode. Right, right. That's correct. And I think there are certain basketball players recently who've had some retinal detachment surgery and who continue to do well in the uh, playoffs after their retinal detachment repair. So it is something that nowadays, once you've had a good retinal detachment repair, you can get back to a pretty normal lifestyle. There are many other types of uh, detachments dealing with diabetes and scar formation, intravitreal hemorrhages, and so on. And I think we'll leave that for another uh, discussion another time. Certainly. But this has been a good discussion. I hope it's been helpful to our listeners. And again, I'm your host, Dr. Roy Levitt, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Revealing Retina, presented by the American Retina Foundation. For more information, visit us online at AmericanRetina.org. We welcome your questions and comments about this or any other show. Please send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at www.reachmd.com. Our new on-demand and our new podcast features will allow you access to our entire program library. And I'd like again to thank Dr. Saad Sheikh for the interview, and hopefully we can do this again, Saad. Certainly, Roy. Thank you very much for having me.